Uh, my name is Peter, and uh, I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the amazing privilege of serve, um, preaching our very first sermon of 2021, and I'm so glad that uh, for everyone here that you've joined us and for everyone tuning in uh, that, that you're attending as well. Um, if you're anything like me, uh, and as we've just heard through the prayers and, uh, and, and just through the words of, of the folks leading our service, um, it's relieving and even refreshing that 2020 is finally over. A good riddance, right? I mean, 2020 was a hard year, and it was probably a hard year for you. But we all know that just because we flip over a calendar page, just because COVID will eventually go away, Lord willing, it doesn't mean that life will magically get easier. Life will always bring different difficulties our way. And in a lot of ways, I think that translates to our journey of following Jesus. Because if you're serious about following Jesus, he actually tells us that it won't be easy. But we're promised that it really is worth it to follow him. As we begin this new year, some of you may have a list of uh, New Year's resolutions. Maybe it's to learn a new language or join CrossFit or pick up a new hobby. But whether you have a list or not, I want to encourage you that the thing most worth doing in your life this year is to follow Jesus. That's what we've been aiming to learn for the past several months as we've been going through our sermon series called Following Jesus Through the Book of Luke. And today we'll be looking at Luke 9 and hearing what Jesus says about following him even if it's costly. Today's passage comes from verses 18 through 27, so please read with me as we read the very word of God, starting from verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. There's a popular quote that says that sometimes the hardest things in life are the things most worth doing. And one of the most helpful truths to understand and embrace as you follow Jesus is to understand the truth that following Jesus is going to be hard. Following Jesus is going to be hard. And uh, we're told this many times uh, throughout Scripture, and Jesus makes this crystal clear here in our passage. If you want to follow him, it's going to be costly. If you're listening and you're not a follower of Jesus, it's important for you to understand this before you decide to follow him so that you know what to expect. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's important for you to be reminded of this 
because we so often forget this, don't we? If you're, uh, God calls all of us uh, to follow Jesus with absolute allegiance, even if it costs us everything. And our passage reveals to us three aspects to the costliness of following him. And this is going to be our sermon outline for today. First, the Messiah. Second, the means. And third, the motivation. First, the Messiah. It's costly because of the Messiah we follow. Our passage takes place after Jesus performs a number of astonishing miracles. And over the past couple months, we've seen some amazing stories. Last week, we heard about uh, the, the faith of a small boy and how Jesus used it to feed a, a large crowd. And by now, throughout Galilee, there's a frenzied rumor about who Jesus is. This is why we find Jesus away from the crowd, praying alone with his disciples. And what we hear described in verses 18 through 22 is who Jesus is and what he must do. First, who is Jesus? This is the most important question that the Gospel of Luke answers. In fact, some would argue that this is the most important question of all time. Who is Jesus? It's so critical for us to understand who Jesus is in order for us to follow him, even if it's costly. We're told in our passage that Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 18, Jesus asks his followers, who do the crowds say that I am? After the disciples tell that Jesus who the crowds say that uh, he is, Peter makes his most famous confession when Jesus asks him the very same question. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ of God. This is the first time in the gospel that one of his followers recognizes Jesus as the Christ, and it's a crucial point in the gospel of Luke. Some of you know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? He's not Mr. Christ or Uncle Christ. He is the Christ. It's his title. Christ is a Greek word for the Hebrew title Messiah or the Anointed One. And this is because back then, prophets, priests, and kings were uh, anointed for the sacred offices they were appointed to. And the Hebrews believed that when God anointed a person, they actually received a measure of the Holy Spirit in a special way to carry out the responsibilities of their office. The word Messiah appears 39 times in the Old Testament, and what becomes louder through the Old Testament is that a special leader, the ultimate Messiah, would descend from the line of Israel's greatest leader, King David. He would be the one who would lead, save, and deliver his people from their worst enemies. What's amazing about the Messiah, we of course find out in the New Testament, is that uh, he was more than just a special leader that God would send. It was his one and only eternally begotten Son. God the Father sent God the Son as the very Messiah. But the way the Messiah would lead, save, and deliver his people isn't the way that everyone expected. Verses 21 and 22 tells us, second, what the Messiah must do. We read that he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, he prescribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the first time Jesus predicts his own suffering in the gospel. And from this point forward, Luke focus, Luke's focus shifts from who Jesus is 
to what Jesus must now do. Notice Jesus tells his disciples not to tell this to anyone because his mission didn't align with what people expected. People expected a powerful ruler. They hoped in a Messiah that would save them from oppression, abuse, and unjust treatment from the powerful Roman Empire. And that's no surprise because for the last thousand years, Israel was constantly under the oppression of the ruling power of the day. Different empires, same story. Century after century, oppression, abuse, unjust treatment. And God cares deeply about that. Throughout this whole time, all through the Old Testament, prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger came and pointed God's people to the promised Messiah. Don't worry, salvation's coming. Hang on, is what they would say. And for many of God's people, salvation primarily meant a political freedom secured by a powerful Savior. But Jesus' mission as the Messiah wasn't to avoid suffering, but to secure our salvation through suffering. And that's because the goal of his mission wasn't to save us merely politically and temporarily. It was to save us spiritually and eternally. And to accomplish his mission, Jesus wouldn't use power. He would use weakness. Weakness like being born as a helpless baby to a poor carpenter's family like we celebrated over a week ago. Instead of saving his people by overpowering his enemies, he would suffer, die, be rejected at the hands of his enemies. To conquer your enemies by suffering and dying sounds so backwards and so upside down, and it made absolutely no sense to the people following Jesus around in Galilee 2,000 years ago. But for those of us listening to Luke today, we know the full story. We know the most important answer to this most important question. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah everyone has been waiting for, the Son of God, God himself, the Savior of the world. And his ultimate mission is to conquer our worst enemies, sin, Satan, and death, through his death, through his suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection for the world and for you. This is who Jesus is. I want to pause right here and ask, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus the most important answer to the most important question you should be asking in your life? More important than your education, your career, your marriage, your children, your future, your health, your wealth, even your own life. The happiness and value you find in any of these can't go deep enough and won't last long enough. Do you realize what's on the line when it comes to answering this question? There's some of you listening today, perhaps, and you're not a member of any church. You're not a believer. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. And I want to tell you, first, thanks for showing up and for some of you coming back. But I wouldn't be loving if I didn't warn you that your life is on the line. Your soul is on the line. Your eternity is on the line when it comes to answering this question. There are some of, uh, others of you that might think you're a follower of Jesus, but there's no visible fruit. 
There's no heart transformation. There's no faith. You act like a part-time Christian, but deep down you know that you're a full-time counterfeit. The most loving thing I can say to you this morning is that your life is on the line, your soul is on the line, your eternity is on the line. But God loves you so much that he wants you to clearly hear this question this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? My prayer is that you would say he is Lord and that he becomes the one you live for and the one you follow. Luke tells us who the Messiah is and what he must do. He didn't come to merely give us temporary comfort or happiness. He wants to give you something much greater, but it cost him everything. And it's no surprise then that it'll be costly for those who follow him as well. This leads us to the second aspect to the costliness of following Jesus, the means. It's costly because of the means he gives us to follow him. And verse 23 describes what it looks like to follow Jesus. And Jesus tells us three things. Deny yourself, pick up the cross daily, and follow me. Let's take a look at each one. First, deny yourself. Jesus tells us that you need to deny yourself if you want to follow him. Now, when some of you hear that you need to deny yourself if you want to be a Christian, some of you might think that you need to deny yourself of certain things. And that's certainly what I thought early in my Christian life. I thought that if I was going to be a Christian, I needed to give up ungodly and unchristian things. And one of the many things I gave up, at least for a season, was 90s K-pop, all right? Korean pop music in the 90s. And uh, I remember coming back home from a retreat and um, being convicted that if I truly wanted to be a Christian, I could only listen to Christian music. So I came home, grabbed all my K-pop CDs. Uh, CDs, I don't know if you guys all know what CDs are. You can Google it. Uh, but I grabbed all my K-pop CDs, threw them in a garbage bag, and tossed them out. Jesus' requirement is much more radical than simply denying yourself of certain things. Denying yourself means to first recognize that the most important person that you live for is actually yourself. And um, in order to do that, we need to recognize that we all love ourselves. We all live for ourselves. But then it also means to reject yourself as the most important person to live for. Jesus calls us to deny our very self. That's why he says later in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Jesus didn't mean that you have to dislike yourself or loathe yourself, but he did mean that you do need to deny yourself. We need to recognize and reject your very self as the most important person to live for. You need to die to yourself, putting yourself to death and live for him. Think about it this way. At the center of your life and in the innermost part of your heart is a throne. And whoever sits on this throne is the one you live for and the one you love. And for most of our lives, the one sitting on this throne is yourself. You rule, you reign, you call your shots, you live for yourself. 
But Jesus says, you cannot sit on this throne and follow me. So he tells us, deny yourself. Recognize and reject yourself as the most important person to live for and live for him. Then he says something astounding, doesn't he? He says, if you want to follow him, you need a second, pick up your cross daily. This alludes to a more graphic object of what following Jesus looks like. The cross, as some of you know, was an instrument of capital punishment in ancient Rome. But what isn't as well known, maybe, is that it was only reserved for the worst of criminals. In fact, it was so horrible that Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified on a cross. The cross was so repugnant, so repulsive, that it was only reserved for the worst of Rome's criminal enemies. And when those condemned were sentenced to be crucified, the worst of the worst would then be forced to carry this horizontal crossbeam made of solid wood, weighed about 100 pounds, and they would carry it from the criminal court to the execution site, where after they were tied to it, or in Jesus' case, nailed to it, there was an upright post waiting for them to be hung on. And Jesus says, in order to follow him, you need to pick up your cross daily. What this means for us is, I think, at least a couple things. First, it means that you need to make a decision. In order to follow Jesus, you need to make a decision to follow him. It won't just happen. You can't just wait for it to happen. Right? You need to decide to identify with Jesus as the one who suffered, was rejected, and died for you on that wretched, repugnant, repulsive Roman cross. You need to decide that Jesus is now your Messiah, your Savior, your Lord, the one who sits on your throne. You need to decide that Jesus is the one you will obey, the one you will submit to, the one you will follow, even if it leads to your suffering, rejection, and even your own death. Second, I think it means that the decision you, you make needs to be a daily decision. You see, the grammar of the phrase carry the cross indicates a one-time event. Right? It's a one-time event. You carry the cross to the execution site, and then you die. Right? That's it, one time. But then, Jesus curiously ends the phrase by saying, every day. You carry the cross to your death every single day. One reason that's important is because our faith isn't a one-time decision you make to follow Jesus. Your faith isn't in that you come from a Christian family. Your faith isn't in that you rely on coming to church even once a week. Following Jesus means that you make a daily decision to identify with Jesus, to obey Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to place your hope in Jesus as you follow him no matter where he leads, day after day, over and over again. This is why it's said that salvation isn't merely a gate that you walk through one time, right? That one time you profess your faith at a retreat, or that one time I pray the sinner's prayer. Salvation isn't merely a gate that you walk through one time. Rather, salvation is a path that you walk on day after day after day, repenting, 
believing, obeying, repenting, believing, obeying. Our church calls this the gospel waltz. It's what we do as Christians day after day, over and over again, just like breathing. This especially applies to Christians who've been Christians for a long time. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you're following Jesus. But if you're following Jesus daily, you know that you're a Christian. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Christ every single day. And this leads to the third means he gives us to follow him. And it's simply to follow Jesus. Notice what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 23. He says, if anyone would come after me. Another way to say this is if anyone wants or wishes or desires to follow me. This is a deep desire that drives a willful action. The only rational reason that you would completely give up your life and completely live for someone else is because you're in complete love with them. It's only when a person is deeply driven by love that they can lay down their life and live for another. And what Jesus is saying is, if you love me, live for me. Parenting has become in my life one of my greatest joys and one of my greatest struggles. And it's why I joke with people all the time that, uh, that I was one of the holiest people I knew before I got married. And now, especially as parents, nowhere near holy. I know that, okay? Uh, being firm while being gentle and patient and loving all my kids all the time, it's not easy. Right? It's easy to get annoyed. It's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to get angry. Each of my children should often feel like they're the apple of my eye, but they end up always being, seems like, the object of my wrath. A few weeks ago, I got really upset at one of my kids for uh, being dishonest with me about doing something that they shouldn't have done. And um, this was kind of back-to-back days of us talking about this issue and this happening, and so I was a little bit sensitive to, to, the, to the conversation going into it. Honesty is important. Integrity is important. You don't lie in our family. That's not who you are. That's not who we are. And I could feel the anger rising. He got in two senses. I snapped. Took away TV privileges for a week. Sent him away to his room. I processed this with Jane uh, a little bit later. Realized that even in my desire for my children to be honest, what my anger really showed me was that I actually cared and loved myself more than my children's integrity. You see, I didn't get angry that my child was dishonest. I got angry that my child was dishonest with me, that he lied to me, that my child wasn't uh, respectful enough. He didn't fear me enough even to tell me the truth. I thought I was loving my child by caring for their integrity. Turns out I was really loving myself getting annoyed when I should be patient, getting angry at my child when I should be pursuing the heart of my child, and even treating my children inconsistently and unfairly. Because pretty much the very next day, another one of my kids did the very same thing, and as he was lying to my face, I just busted out laughing because I thought it was so cute. 
not easy being parents. That's it, parents. It's, it isn't easy to parent the way God wants us to parent. But Jesus calls us to die to our need for comfort, for convenience, and even for control, and to put the self to death and bring Christ to the middle and center of our parenting and to parent our children the way God the Father parents us. To be firm in the truth, but tender in love, abounding in patience, affirming and encouraging our children the way God affirms and encourages us. And most importantly, repenting, repenting to God and to our children when, not if, but when we mess up. Parenting is one particular practical area in life that Jesus calls us to follow him, but it's in every area of our lives that we're called to deny the self, pick up the cross, and bring Christ to the middle and center of our hearts and lives as we follow Jesus. It's in our marriages and relationships, the way we treat people, especially those we dislike, how we manage our time and money, and even our own bodies. Our service as deacons and elders and members of the church, sharing the gospel with the lost, pursuing justice and doing mercy, how we plan for the future, all of it for Christ. God calls us to bring every area of our lives under his allegiance and authority. Are you daily giving Christ your throne? Are you following him, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's unpleasant or uncomfortable? You're never going to be perfect, at least not until you see Jesus face to face. But as you're on your way, are you fighting to grow in this grace? Jesus tells us, if you love me, live for me, even if it's costly. But from where does our love for him come? And this leads us to our last point, the motivation. It's costly, but we have rich motivation to follow him. And I want to point out a couple sources of motivation from our passage. And the first is our reward from God. In verse 24 through 27, Jesus describes the reward of the next life for those who follow him in this life. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? The implication is that if you live for this world, this world will be all you get. And in the end, you'll not only lose this world, you'll lose your life, you'll lose your soul, you'll lose everything. And the only thing that will be left for you is God's shame and his wrath because of your sin. But if you give up this short life and live for Christ, you'll gain the most fulfilling and satisfying life here in this life, even if it's costly, but you'll also gain an eternity of a next life where the worst of this life will barely be a distant memory and the best of this life will only be a speck compared to the mountain of joy and glory that you'll receive. A life where you receive a new resurrected body, 
a life where you'll live on a new and restored earth with God's family forever, where there will be no more sickness, sadness, and sorrow, where there'll be no addictions, poverty, or racism, no abuse, no human trafficking, no oppression, no terrorist explosions, no suffering, no more sin, and no more death. A life of infinitely increasing joy and glory with God. This reward serves as great motivation, doesn't it? And it might be just enough to keep you from sinning and following Jesus for a little bit. But reward alone isn't enough to change deep down a heart to love Jesus. Our passage tells us that we have a source of even greater motivation than our reward. We have a relationship with God. Because the reality is that there's no amount of following you can do, no amount of obedience you can give, no amount of good works that you can perform to earn any of the rewards that God will give you for following him. In fact, all, the, uh, all of us here deserve the consequences that Jesus describes in our passage. All of us deserve to lose this world, to lose our lives, to lose our souls, and to lose everything. And the only thing that should be left for us is God's shame and his wrath because the Bible says that no amount of good works that we can do can erase our sins. But look at what Jesus says in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer. He must suffer the way a mom must drive like a madman to get to an ER when her son gets in a terrible car accident. Like the way a husband must do whatever he needs to do to get his wife proper treatment from a dire disease. Jesus must suffer for you because he's compelled by his deep love for you. Because of his love for you, the Messiah denied his very self of all that he deserved, even his own equality with God the Father. He left his heavenly throne cloaked himself in weakness, suffered, was rejected, took up the cross, and on the cross, Jesus became the object of his Father's wrath so that we can now be the apple of his eye, loved and forgiven children of God. Jesus gives you all the rewards he promises in the gospel, not because you've earned them, but as an overflow of his gracious love for you. And he gives all of himself completely to you, to be in a relationship with you where you can love him because he will always love you. For those of you listening today that don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to ask you and encourage you, make a decision to follow him today. Receive him as your Lord. Give him the throne of your heart and your life and begin a relationship with him starting today. And as you do, you'll gain your life here and for eternity. And if you want to make this most important decision, please email us. We'd love to walk through this with you. For everyone else, as we begin this new year, I want to ask you, make a commitment to grow in your love and in your allegiance to Jesus as you follow him in every area of your life. Because when you experience this kind of love, you can't help but to love right back. 
when you experience this kind of love, you'll follow Jesus, even if it's costly. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we place our life and our hope in you, we find the deepest meaning, purpose, and value of our lives in knowing, enjoying, and reflecting the God who knows us and gave up everything for us because of your deep love for us. Help us again and again to faithfully follow you in every area of our life every day so that the world might know the greatness of your grace until you return and make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.